welcome to Shaping Vaping, our weekly conversation on the latest in public policy and regulation around vaping. Uh, I'm your host, Amanda Wheeler. Today is November 15th. We've got some very special guests today. First of all, we have Alex Norcia, who's a reporter with Filter Magazine. He's going to share insight with us from his in-depth reporting on how the FDA justified its blanket denials of millions of PMTAs or pre-market tobacco product applications. Thanks for joining us, Alex. We also have uh, Guy Bentley, the Director of Consumer Freedom at the Reason Foundation. Guy has been following the vaping policy conversation closely and has an important column explaining how the proposed tax on nicotine will drive people back to smoking. We've got both of these uh articles and featured tweets right now. If you haven't had the chance to read both of those very excellent pieces, I would highly recommend you do so. Uh, but first of all, welcome, Alex and Guy. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we wanted to kick it off today and talk about Biden's nomination of uh, Robert Califf for FDA commissioner. Um, once again, President Biden has asked him to head the agency. We've discussed on previous spaces how he appears to be a very status quo commissioner who will continue the agency's anti-vaping crusade. We know where he stands from a 2019 article he penned calling for flavor bans, banning over-the-counter vaping products and nicotine limits. Uh, Guy, I wanted to start with you. If you were a senator at this confirmation hearing, what questions would you press him on? Thanks, Amanda. Um, well, if I was a senator, I would obviously be drawing upon that article he wrote in 2019, which has some interesting threads to it. Some of the stuff we're very familiar with, um, he's called for a complete ban on all flavoured uh, e-cigarette products and is very much in favor if vaping is to have a role in reducing tobacco-related diseases, that they should essentially only be available uh, upon prescription and that over-the-counter nicotine products uh, in vape shops and other retail outlets um, should be banned. And he sees this as part of a broader FDA strategy, which would include um, getting tobacco manufacturers to reduce nicotine limits in combustible cigarettes, and also very much in favor of the prohibition of uh, menthol cigarettes as well. Um, but it's interesting in that he, he knows the history of this product. He, you know, references, um, you know, one of the first uh, uh, available commercially produced um, e-cigarettes invented by Hon Lick all the way back in the um, early 2000s and, you know, appears to intimate that he was initially... Um, somewhat optimistic that these products would play a role, but um, certainly soured um, on this as, a, uh, as an effective strategy for reducing smoking and was uh, very skeptical of the approach the UK has taken in terms of a pro-harm um, reduction stance. Um, but as a sort of, you know, <laughs> in favour of sort of everything bad, but then uh, goes on to say that um, outright prohibition is uh, unrealistic. There's a great line in there that I'll um, quote from his article. Um, I quote, however, there is a widespread view in the United States that adults have the right to choose harmful and addictive lifestyles, at least up to a point, end quote. Um, all I'll say is um, thank God for, for that view that is widespread uh, in the United States. But as you say, it's very much a status quo hostile to the commercial uh, vaping sector and to the policies that we've seen where vaping has had a success, which is as a consumer product, not as a prescribed product, highly regulated in a, in a very restricted number um, of flavors and styles. So as a center, I would be asking him, particularly on the flavors point, in that if the evidence says that FDA is currently reviewing all these PMTA, PMTAs and so on at the moment, but if the agency determines that a product is approved, a, a non-tobacco flavored e-cigarette product, that he will be supportive of the agency that he is leading, that their decision will be to follow the science regardless of his pre-existing uh, opinion that without even looking at any individual company's application um, uh, to the FDA, that he would be supportive of successful PMTA applications. I'd want to dig in further to how much 
his stance would go, whether it is amenable to actually looking at the evidence rather than just having an a priori view that all flavors should be banned regardless of the evidence. That's a great point, Guy. Definitely coming. He's coming into this uh, with some very well-established uh, pre-existing opinions. Uh, Alex, I want to kick that question over to you. What What do you think senators should be on the lookout for as they're weighing this uh, confirmation? Well, I think in terms of speaking more broadly, I guess um, my main concern would be how the FDA regains trust overall because it's been they've made controversial decisions that haven't just been related to vaping, right? I mean, there's been a controversy with the Alzheimer drug, and then there was just a ProPublica article, for example, that basically showed how impossible it is to get these coronavirus tests at home. So, I mean, I would think sort of focusing on the idea that the FDA, the agency itself, doesn't seem to always be uh, following the science and good public health policy. Um, So I would just be curious about that, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely far uh, and widespread concerns about how FDA has handled many, many uh, different items as of late. Uh, I know one thing, Alex, that that I'm particularly concerned about uh, that you exposed in some of your recent reporting is this, uh, you know, fatal flaw memo and this notion that that FDA is uh, changing the criterion in the middle of review. Uh, And so I I certainly will be looking forward to uh, any senators brave enough to wade into those waters to question, um, you know, those those ever changing FDA requirements. Um, so on, on that topic, uh, Alex, I think you did some very, very good reporting over the last week. I wonder if you could walk us through, uh, what you found in your reporting on how FDA was reviewing some of these applications. Yeah, sure. No problem. So, um, I got these memos essentially from a source, not gonna say who it is, but he sent them to me and, um, they had uh, been out of the Triton lawsuit. So I'm not sure why they weren't public, but uh, they were kind of making their way around, uh, let's see, certain circles of people. And they showed that not long after Janet Woodcock had been kind of eviscerated on the Hill, that weeks later, um, the Office of Science, the Center for Tobacco Products, seemed to create a new standard for reviewing outstanding PMTAs. So what that means is they took the top 12 manufacturers in phase two, which is not the scientific review, um, and top 12 manufacturers, meaning they had the most number of pending flavored uh, PMTAs. And then they looked to see if they had two types of studies, essentially longitudinal cohort studies or randomized controlled trials. And what it looks like they did is if they did not have those studies, they just outright rejected the applications. And many have argued um, and courts have seemed to agree that the FDA did not make clear in the past that either of those studies would be required. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Guy, I'm wondering how you see, uh, you know, some of this new information that Alex has uncovered. How do you see this, uh, you know, being worked into some of the litigation that's that's ongoing? Well, I'm not a lawyer and um, legal expert, but it seems to me, you know, what Alex has uncovered is, you know, very close to what a lot of people have been uh, uh, assuming for a long time. And Alex has really uh, essentially proven the case here that essentially this process has become a complete mess. And we see this with, you know, these uh, undisclosed changes in how FDA is uh, reviewing these applications, giving huge, confusing signals and information, sometimes just flat out wrong or incomplete information to people who are trying to honestly play by the rules and submit the fullest and best applications they can to the FDA to get through this incredibly rigorous process. So, you know, one of the things, you know, that um, Calif should be quizzed about when he when he comes up uh, for his nomination on this is he will be inheriting this complete mess that, you know, we've seen setbacks from the F- uh, uh, for the FDA during litigation um, during this process. Several companies have had their products put back in review after receiving initial MDOs. You know, we may see even more of that happening. We could see <laughs> just even more litigation 
around this area. So how can Caliph bring some coherence, rigor and order to this process and give a what has been completely lacking for years now, which is clear, simple instructions to people trying to get through the PMTA process and have their products reviewed in uh, in a way that people can understand and that is not going to be changed either retrospectively um, or anything is going to be withheld in order to essentially maximize the chances of uh, of an MDO. So, um, you know, I, I w- wouldn't want to o- offer an opinion on um, the exact ins and outs on how this will affect certain litigations, either ongoing or forthcoming, um, but it definitely speaks to... Um, a huge problem at uh, at the FDA that um, Calif is going to have to try and figure out. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that memo that Alex uncovered really confirmed what a lot of us uh, who were subject to this process had had suspected all along was that you know at some point the requirements changed uh, due to political influence, particularly that that pressure that was on. Uh, Acting Commissioner Woodcock during her congressional hearings, and I, I think it's it's really incredible for a lot of this litigation that that Alex was able to obtain kind of documentation of where that political pressure came into the process and and how that political pressure was implemented in some of these review decisions. And I, I certainly am looking forward to um, how this will be brought into the litigation and how it will be presented in evidence in some of these cases. So. Uh, uh, stay tuned for that. I doubt that this is the last we'll hear of that memo that Alex reported on. I think that's going to figure very large in a lot of the upcoming litigation. So now let's uh, let's turn and look at the proposed nicotine tax in the Build Back Better bill. Um, this is something that we've been covering extensively every week as it's been an ongoing situation. Uh, last week, we saw Georgia State University professor Michael Pesco uh, publish a letter to Congress outlining several studies that he had conducted with funding from the National Institute of Health on the effects of vaping taxes. In the letter, he said, quote, e-cigarettes and other nicotine vaping products function as what economists call substitutes for conventional cigarettes. In practical terms, if e-cigarettes and cigarettes are substitutes, then raising the price of one on average leads people to increase the use of the other. Um, Obviously, um, in the second iteration of this tax, we've seen the cigarette tax be dropped entirely and now the tax largely falls on to vaping products. Uh, and I've got a question for Guy. You wrote about Professor Pesco's findings recently. Could you tell us more about that and the dangerous public health implications of this recent tax proposal? Sure thing. Um, one thing I'd note about um, Professor Pesco's um, letter that he wrote to Congress with colleagues is that um, I think it's an incredibly positive development, not just because um, Pesco is one of the leading um, really one of the leading economists in the country, um, if not the world uh, at the moment, in analysing the effects of e-cigarette taxes. And it's great to see people really bringing that academic expertise um, to Congress and see academics who, um, you know, are really in the weeds of this subject and understand tobacco harm reduction, really trying to make their voices known um, uh, on the Hill and in other outlets as well rather than the sort of um, very ill-informed, uninformed uh, uh, propaganda we see from so much of the um, anti-vaping community. But um, Pesco's analysis was pretty devastating on what the effects of this tax would be. As uh, Amanda, you say, the taxes on combustible cigarettes has been completely dropped from this, um, which would have been, even if you believe the uh, revenue estimates that were being put, putting out there um, dramatically limits any potential revenue um, from this tax. Um, I, I think it's supposed to come to something under a billion dollars a year, and that's even uh, and that's assuming a a sort of uh, an, uh, an e-cigarette marketplace in which most products haven't been banned, which they either are now or soon will be. So even those numbers would be massively wildly over-optimistic um, for a bill that's now $1.7 trillion. So this really contributes nothing to, um, in terms of revenue raising potential, but it is um, massive for public health. Um, according to Pesco's analysis, it would mean about 2.75 million more daily adult smokers and around 530,000 more teen smokers and 29,000 more prenatal smokers. Now, 
that is just horrendous. That is an objectively pro-smoking tax. Um, it is a tax uh, for getting off of cigarettes. And, it, you know, it's it, it was quite extraordinary to see the original tax in the Build Back Better bill, which was pretty horrendous. And that then the, the genius being that how do we make this tax even worse and even worse for public health by completely eliminating the combustible element of it um, while just keeping attacks on reduced harm uh, nicotine products. And um, I think it's worth talking about who this tax targets because um, it, it's a clear violation of President Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on those earning uh, under $400,000 a year. The vast majority of vapors earn uh, around or less than $40,000 a year. And um, I, it's going to be, you know, 99% plus of vapors earn less than $400,000 a year. So it's clearly a violation of the pledge, but also um, uh, an objectively regressive tax. And also, if you think about the other profile of vapors and that, uh, for instance, vapors are also twice as likely as non-vapors uh, to not have a college degree, for instance. So in terms of particularly from a Democrat's point of view, um, you are going to raise taxes um, for people choosing a safer alternative to cigarettes on a group of people who uh, earn either less than the median, uh, the median wage uh, and certainly far less than President Biden's $400,000 pledge and also a group of voters who you are massively in trouble with and are losing left, right and centre to Republicans, which is people without, without a college degree. Uh, it's almost a perfectly calibrated tax um, to attack uh, the people you are both losing at the polls and the people you've uh, promised to protect. So both um, uh, protect financially through your legislative agenda. So both from a public health point of view and also a political view, um, this tax is, is really not a great idea for Democrats' behalf. And I think, you know, we've already seen uh, Senator Manchin um, already say that this tax doesn't make sense to him. And also Senator um, uh, Cortez Masto from uh, Nevada also coming at, come out against this um, uh, very strongly as well, which, which is great to see. So even if the, the House does end up passing the Build Back Better agenda with this tax included this week, uh, it's going to, and um, there are other senators besides those two who are going to be against this tax. Uh, it's going to face a very tough run in the Senate. But I still think it's worth those who are covering this issue, who are interested in advocating for harm reduction, to really highlight just how bad this tax is, even if it may have a very slim or almost non-existent chance of staying in the bill in the Senate. It's a great opportunity to educate those in Congress of just how devastating these taxes are for public health. Um, not just um, for, you know, this legislative fight, but there'll doubtless be legislative fights on this tax issue um, uh, in the years to come. So it is a great entree for harm reduction advocates to really educate and make their points to lawmakers in Congress. Yeah, Guy, I couldn't agree more. As uh, many of our regular listeners uh, probably know, I run six retail vape shops in Arizona, Colorado, and Oklahoma. And, you know, the vast majority of our customers are older people who have been lifelong smokers who are trying to quit, uh, retirees, uh, senior citizens on fixed incomes, you know, and they know in, in their financial budgets how much how much money they spend on vaping products and, and what their budget is for the products that keep them off cigarettes. A lot of our customers are military service members, you know, working class people. Um, I think there's a lot of research that shows 94% of people that, that use these products make under $200,000 a year. And so certainly a, a group of people that, that you know, don't really have the budget to, to be footing the bill for this Build Back Better Act. And certainly people that were promised that this Build Back Better Act wouldn't come at their expense. Um, I wanted to kick it over to Alex and ask you what kind of message this sends when we've already got one approval out of the FDA on the VUES product, uh, stating that this is a product that is considered by the FDA to be appropriate for the protection of public health. And then on the other hand, we've got members of Congress who think it's a great idea to raise revenue by taxing these products that are meant to be a public health tool. Uh, what do you make of that sort of double messaging from the federal government around vaping right now? Um, in short, it's certainly not helpful. And I mean, Guy pretty much covered it all. But I guess 
in the sense that there's a silver lining to any of this, I've not seen this level of pushback ever. I think in part because when you have, you know, things like flavor bans or limiting the nicotine and e-cigarettes, you often have to spend, you know, minutes and minutes contextualizing why those are bad ideas, right? Explaining that adults like flavors and they don't want to be vaping tobacco flavors because it reminds them of cigarettes or that higher nicotine levels could, you know, help them off of cigarettes because it mimics the levels in cigarettes. But here, I think you have a very clear message that Biden is going against what he pledged not to do, which was raise taxes for families making more than $400,000. So you have, in a sense, a way to talk about what's happening in a manner that people seem to understand, if that makes any sense. But at the end of the day, um, I don't think it's going to provide much clarity if the FDA is saying one thing and then um, senators and Congress people are saying almost the opposite. I would just um, briefly add on to what Alex is saying. It was interesting to see the other week when this was proposed, the House Republican Study Committee um, tweet out an attack on this tax. I think for a number of years, we've seen that um, some in Congress uh, and certainly at the state level as well, have seen um, vapors and um, the vape industry as a sort of useful target to get uh, either a cheap media hit or to, you know, hold, frankly, useless hearings to grandstand in front of Congress about how they're uh, against vaping and so on and uh, protecting youth, but that actually there is a uh, an upside from opposing these sorts of measures. There's um, I think more than 15 million adult vapors in the United States. And this uh, um, highly motivated group, this is a product that got them off of something that um, particularly ne- negatively impacted their lives. And in many cases, isn't just improving their health, it's saving them money. Because at the moment, and you know, almost anywhere where you are in the United States, um, you will have a financial incentive because there is a differential between the price of combustible cigarettes and e-cigarettes. So you are improving your health and saving money. And if somebody um, comes along and says, well, you, you're making the wrong decision and we're going to take away that financial incentive and essentially punish you for making that decision, um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's something that affects your life in quite, a, in quite a visceral way. So I hope this can be um, something of an example to say that, um, you know, vapors are not just um, uh, a target um, uh, for politicians to uh, to attack, and that you know, at the end of the day, this is not a um, <laughs> it's not a vote moving issue for those who oppose vaping. People are not going to come out to the polls and vote for you because you took an anti vaping stance. But there are quite a few vapors in the country um, who, depending on you know which state it was your senator, congressperson, state representative, if you were in favour of um, uh, of explicitly attacking and taxing this person, that might be a vote moving issue for them. So I think it's definitely something for people in Congress to ponder. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I, you know, in 2019, there was a lot of talk about that in the in the vaping community, right, of single issue voters, uh, the We Vape, We Vote movement. And, you know, one thing that I can say as a as a small business owners, our, our customers do pay attention to these things, right? You know, conversations that take place in the shops. I, I think um, a lot of customers are aware of what goes on. And certainly, uh, small business owners are, are definitely very motivated to inform their customers of where they're elected officials stand on these issues. It's something that that we definitely communicate with our customers about it in my business um, on, a, on a very regular basis. Because, you know, for, for a lot of people that vape, it's, it's not some sort of esoteric theoretical issue, right? We're talking about people who had tried for, for years or even decades to quit something that they knew was very harmful to them, smoking cigarettes, and were unable to do so, right? And, and people, a lot of people who had given up on the thought of being able to quit when all of a sudden they found vaping products, their lives were instantly and immediately changed. And all of a sudden they're out of the grips of, of combustible tobacco. And for these politicians to sort of sit back and think that's not a vote moving issue for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, uh, in my opinion, is, is very short sighted. I know for me personally, um, you know, since I found vaping and started my business, it informs every vote that I make in every single election. And I know that's definitely the case for my employees, for other members of our trade associations. And so I definitely think it's something that uh, is becoming more and more of a political force as time goes on. Um, 
I want to talk for a minute, Guy, you you referenced before that you don't think this nicotine tax is, is very likely to get out of the Senate. Um, I wanted to know, Alex, what do you think about the likelihood of this nicotine tax moving through Congress right now? Um, I can only speak to what uh, people have told me. And I, I polled some people before I got on this Twitter space. Um, and it seems... Um, I would say increase, increasingly less likely, but I don't want to. I don't want to bet on it. Um, uh, it is a remarkably bad idea, so I, 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 I don't. I'm optimistic that it won't pass, but um, we'll see. I mean, if more senators sort of start objecting to it, um, yeah, I think it'll die. But we'll see. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to follow this minute by minute because there's always something new every other second. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I'm tracking this every day and it seems the timelines on, you know, when these things are coming to a vote are shifting. We're starting to see more people uh, come out against it. I was a bit surprised to, to see it brought back in the House, to be quite honest. Um, and I, I certainly think the prognosis is not good in the Senate, but with all the horse trading and last minute deals that go on, you know, that's kind of anybody's guess. I, I certainly think the one thing that, that we can say for sure is that, you know, everyone who benefits and uses these products definitely needs to be uh, contacting uh, their senators and their representatives right now and voicing their opposition to it. Can I say, can I say one more thing quickly while I'm thinking of it? Yeah, of course. Um, it was interesting too, the sort of uh, the mainstream media attention, I think this tax had gotten to in the sense that I know the intercept weighed in basically explaining why, they were going after vaping products instead of taxing, you know, millionaires and billionaires. The Wall Street Journal obviously had an article that circulated around. So I will just say the sort of the idea of taxing people making less than four hundred thousand dollars sort of sort of fits in with, I would say, the main theme of the times, right? Which is that there's this sort of burgeoning inequality gap, right? And people really seem to be paying attention to this in a way that I don't think um, they're necessarily paying attention to say, you know, flavor bans in D.C. or nicotine concentrations or things like that. Like it's a very pressing moment for this industry. Right. And, you know, it's, you bring up an interesting point and, and I'm wondering if, if either one of you have thoughts on this, but what I was noticing is that when the tax included a cigarette tax, it was getting a lot more uh, negative media attention. And now that that cigarette tax has been stripped out of it, it seems like there hasn't been quite as much coverage of it. Um, have you two noticed uh, a similar pattern or have you noticed something different? It's it. That's, that's tough to say too. I mean, uh, the journal article obviously hinted at the idea that this was a, a policy and the intercept article that I was referencing earlier um, was kind of trying to figure out why the cigarette tax was removed. I mean, I think that's a gigantic story if I or somebody could figure out um, exactly how that happened. But quite frankly, I think people's attention just waned. It was in the news and then other things happened and then people stopped paying attention, but I imagine it's going to get back on people's radars soon, assuming it actually moves through the house. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So I think it'll get more, more attention as you know, if this passes the house and goes to the Senate and becomes a bit of a sticking point or whether it will, or will not stay on the bill. Um, I think it'll, uh, it'll get some more attention. And I think hopefully, you know, groups like Reason and others will be, you know, trying to draw, draw attention to, to this, like we're trying to draw attention to the previous cigarette tax. I mean, one of the, I think it, there's a fairly obvious reason why, why it doesn't get as much play as the previous version. Uh, I mean, the previous version, one, there are just more smokers than vapors, right? Uh, there's 34 million smokers in this country. Um, the, the, doubling of the federal um, excise tax on combustible cigarettes would have been huge and also very severely regressive. I mean, you're talking a, a huge tax increase. Uh, again, uh, again, the, the most regressive tax um, uh, in, in the country, more regressive than the gas tax. Um, so you're talking about, a, a, you know, a significant number of people, you know, around 50 million people or so, but also, you know, 
I think people are aware of the dangers of cigarettes. They're familiar with the arguments, you know, for and against cigarette taxes and so on. People are, you know, aware of the risks of cigarettes and so on. Um, it's still, you know, part of this thing we may, may come on to later of that vaping is still not very well understood either by lawmakers or the public at large. There was a very depressing chart that um, uh, Professor Pesco tweeted, I believe it was last week or the week before, um, some data from the National Health Interview um, Survey um, looking at perceptions, um, the public's perceptions over whether vaping was just as or more harmful um, than cigarettes. And I think it was it's something like a vast majority, 60% plus of people, might have been even more uh, of Americans think vaping is just as or more harmful than cigarettes. And the percentage of people who had who correctly identified that they were um, less harmful than cigarettes, I think it was either at or under 10%. I mean, that is a stunning uh, failure of communication. I mean, it, people today are m more misinformed about vaping than they were in 2013. I, I mean, it's just, it, it's absolutely incredible. So there's still a perception gap here. But, you know, hopefully, Amanda, as you say, as you know, we've had one e-cigarette product, one, unfortunately, that, you know, nobody uses has been authorized by the FDA. Um, but it's going to be increasingly difficult as more products do get authorized, and I hope they will be, for people to, um, uh, uh, you know, continue to make those those kinds of arguments. Yeah, thanks for referencing that chart, Guy. We've got that up as a featured tweet in the space right now. I would recommend everybody go take a look at it because it's definitely a sad state of affairs, the the general, uh, the knowledge of the general public on this topic. And Guy, you referred to it as uh, misinformation. And I would almost uh, say that, that consumers have been willfully disinformed, right? Uh, you know, misinformation almost implies uh, that that it's somehow accidental, right? And I would say that this has been a, a quite coordinated, funded, and purposeful attempt to disinform the public and and you know purposefully give them uh, very very bad information on the topic. And you're right; it's it's only gotten worse over time. And, you know, I can't help but look to countries like the United Kingdom, where there's been such an effort and such funding put behind properly informing the public of the role of vaping in quitting smoking and the health benefits of, of doing so. And I wonder if you all have thoughts with, with where we're at right now in the public discourse on this topic. Uh, what is it going to take for the American public uh, to have an accurate picture and accurate information on vaping? Yeah, uh, it's a uh, it, it's a challenge. Uh, I'll say, I'll say that. Um, I think one of the things we've obviously seen over the years is that every you know study, no matter how poorly done or later withdrawn um, or, or, or criticised, um, purporting to show uh, some significant level of harm from vaping, does get uh, an incredible amount of media coverage. And you know, as you allude to, um, Amanda. Um, this anti-vaping campaign is extraordinarily well financed. You have Michael Bloomberg giving, you know, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, uh, to these groups to put about their message. They are um, very well connected to uh, media sources who have a certain very kind of old school view, who basically think uh, uh, vaping is just big tobacco 2.0 and are very comfortable with that narrative, no matter how... Um, uh, how incredulous it is. Um, I mean, the the only sort of pushback I, or that got at least some decent media play uh, in the last few years were the two stories. One was the Ivali um, epidemic or, or crisis, which, you know, many people said from the beginning, these lung, lung injuries and deaths just could not be associated with nicotine vaping. Uh, but the CDC, as we've seen with COVID, uh, dropped the ball massively on that um, and eventually had to revise its guidance. And there was some uh, coverage of those reversals in the mainstream media and, you know, a bit of responsible reporting and saying, oh, no, this is not found to be uh, uh, from nicotine vaping, but rather from illegal and illicit uh, marijuana cartridges laced with vitamin, vitamin E acetate. And of course, there was the um, 
the infamous study by um, Stanton Glantz, uh, who claimed that uh, vaping uh, um, significantly increased your risk of a heart attack relative to cigarettes. Uh, and that study was later retracted and essentially put an end to his um, long and inglorious um, academic uh, career. Um, there was, you know, a certain level of coverage around that, but it took a long time to get that study retracted and to get uh, people interested in covering that. Um, so I think it's it's increasingly important that, the, the, for instance, if you're talking about the press, the press is going to cover whatever is a, you know, a rather sort of exciting, sexy story that's, you know, uh, va va vaping causes X, Y, and Z. It's important that when other more credible research comes out really showing the risk differentials between nicotine vapes and uh, combustible cigarettes, that that research and the research of, you know, on the effects of taxes and so on gets um, at least as much of a hearing as the negative stories. Uh, I was encouraged to see a decent amount of coverage of um, Abigail Friedman uh, from Yale University study on the effect of a tobacco flavor ban, including e-cigarettes in San Francisco, which showed that um, uh, uh, high schoolers in uh, districts not covered by the flavor ban uh, were around twice as likely to be um, cigarette smokers a year after the ban uh, than before the ban. That did get a bit of play, but um, hopefully more um, more coverage like that on uh, research that's being put about would be um, uh, would be good. But uh, I think a Alex probably has a better sense of the media realm than <laughs> than I do. It being being his bread, bread and butter. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, not flippantly, but I think once companies like Jules Products are authorized, um, you might see a sort of I would hope uh, uh, more welcoming. Arms. I only say that because then these companies will almost de facto be on the same side as the FDA, right? Because they'll be authorizing the products. I mean, right now what you have is the FDA not being abundantly clear about much of anything. You have all these companies, uh, at least the big ones, waiting around to see what's going to happen. And then you have politicians who are just sort of, you know, trying to institute blanket flavor bans around the countries. But I think once bigger products are authorized um people are at least the public at large i would think uh might be at least drawn or begin to think that uh what they previously thought about vaping might be untrue i might be being uh optimistic but i don't see any other sort of solution quite honestly right and you know alex you bring a sort of catch-22 that I think a lot of us are in, right? We're, we're sort of, um, on the one hand, uh, cheering for FDA to issue some more uh, approval orders so that accurate information can start to be disseminated about these products. And at the same time, we're really held back by um, the slowness with which with FDA is moving through these applications, um, these arbitrary and differing standards that FDA is enacting. And so it's it's definitely not an enviable uh, position for companies that want to get accurate information out to the public. Um, just right there, I'm going to pause. We're running uh, well ahead of schedule today. If, if any of our listeners want to chime in with thoughts or questions, uh, feel free to go ahead and uh, request permission to, to speak and we'll get you on to make your comment or ask your questions here. And don't be shy. We, like I said, we've got plenty of time left in the space and we welcome audience participation. Um, but with that being said, we're going to go ahead and move into our media lapdogs uh, section of the space here and talk about some of the, the different coverage we've seen on vaping come out of the media over the last week. And I, I wanted to start with a Wall Street Journal piece. It was a bit of a unicorn moment in vaping coverage over the last week when they ran a story with the headline, Biden's vaping tax sparks concerns people will go back to cigarettes. Uh, the story cited 
cited credible sources like Dr. Michael Pesco's work, as well as Kenneth Werner of the University of Michigan. Um, I was I was very happy to see this piece. It's it's one of the most well balanced pieces of coverage I've seen in mainstream media in quite a long time. Um, the reporter uh, did a really great job of of going out and finding credible experts on the other side of the issue. And you know, for once, our experts got got more than a one line quotation at the end of an article, which is the usual uh, treatment media gives to us, you know, that there'll be, um, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of, of negative false bias coverage. And then, you know, there may be one sentence at the end where um, they throw in a quote from, you know, Greg Conley or, or someone else. And what we saw in this article was was the complete opposite of that. Um, and so I, I would certainly look at this as, as progress in mainstream media coverage. But um, I had a question. And, and what I wanted to know is, where were all of these other mainstream outlets like the New York Times, CNN, um, the Associated Press on the harms of the vape tax? Alex, what have you been seeing out there in the coverage? Um, it's hard to it's hard to guess these things. Obviously, um, I will say the Wall Street Journal obviously covers finances and this is about a tax. Um, but I think more broadly, um, Jennifer Maloney pretty much not exclusively, but kind of exclusively covers the tobacco industry, among some other things. Um, so she seems to be familiar with the characters and players in the world more so than other people. Right. I mean, I think what happens um, and I know we'll talk about this later, but what happens in some of these studies say. If someone gets a press release, uh, they read the press release, it's, you know, sponsored by the American Heart Association or whatever. Um, and then they run with it and basically just transcribe the uh, press release into a into a news article and then interview uh, the person who wrote the study. Right. Meaning that they're on a deadline. They don't know much about this topic anyway. And then they just pump out what they think um, is accurate information. And it turns out not to be true. Um, I will say, I think at least in the past year the sort of sensationalism has, in my opinion, died down a bit, but I really, it, it's guesswork trying to figure out why people cover certain things and why others don't. A guy, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before, um, and obviously we've talked about this a lot, how these taxes violate this um, $400,000 pledge that President Biden made. Um, and I wanted to know, why do you think the mainstream media is ignoring the fact that this tax at this point in time violates that pledge? Do you see this as an effort of, on the part of the media to to avoid controversy around this, to sort of cover for the administration violating their commitment? Or, or do you think it's just more of lazy reporting? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things at play here. Um, we saw uh, a little bit of this with the um, the original formulation of this tax in form uh, in the form of a tobacco tax. Uh, one, I think, um, on this specific new tax on just reduced risk products, I think it you know it simply hasn't got a lot of play at the moment. It's had a little bit, obviously, from Wall Street Journal. From there's been, uh, I think, I saw. Um, uh, something Paul Blair tweeted in Roll Call earlier. So, you know, it's mentioned and there's a bit of um, interplay about what its chances are. But um, I think it's it, it, it's ma it's mainly because it's, it's not one of the huge, most controversial parts of the bill, for instance, like, for instance, reform of salt um, or, you know, um, uh, any of the other, you know, ramping up um, the IRS budget or things like that, things that are, you know, m much more um, significant in terms of the actual revenue side of BBB. Um, but uh, in terms of, you know, the hostility or not to it, um, I think there is a perception, there certainly was with the original tobacco tax that, you know, it did get some play as being, as being regressive and not just by, you know, um, very favourable journalists or, or um, think tankers or harm reduction advocates or so on. Um, there is a sense that uh, Jason Furman, um, who was previously um, uh, on uh, President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, there is an idea that tobacco taxes that while, and we've, this language has permeated public health for several years now, that while technically it's financially regressive, it's health progressive. So that while CSUR taxing more people, um, uh, they, you know, they will either reduce their 
tobacco consumption or quit smoking. And then in the long term, that is progressive. Of course, uh, you know, one of the knockdowns to that is of, that <laughs> it's it, it's actually not up to a third party to to determine um, uh, what's what's progressive from the consumer from the consumer's point of view. Um, a consumer's welfare can only be known by that individual consumer. Um, so it's not up to you know a third party to, to to essentially credit them with a benefit that they didn't necessarily want through through a tax they didn't want. Um, and so and so it it it, it doesn't quite work there but this is um doubly bad because there's no there is no health benefit to this you know with the cigarette tax you could you could try and make a claim that um you know this will have some public health benefits even though as we are very well aware cigarettes are you know smokers are highly inelastic and very few smokers would have quit in response to even a doubling of the federal excise tax. Um, some may have reduced their consumption, a very small portion may have quit, but the vast majority would just continue to um, to pay the tax and see um, a smaller household budget. But with this tax, you can't even make a public health argument. It's, it, it's This tax actively increases the number of smokers in the US. There is zero health benefit to this tax. There is an active health negative. So I, I do think Mike Pesco's intervention is is uh, important in this. But also, you mentioned Ken Warner, who, uh, if you remember, I believe it was uh, a month or two ago, led a letter with of 15 past presidents of the Society for Research on Tobacco and Nicotine, sort of the world's leading sort of um, academic organization um, um, for, um, you know, smoking, smoking reduction and anti-tobacco and all the rest of it, um, in a letter to the American Journal of Public Health, saying the US is going completely the wrong direction in terms of its vaping policy. Um, uh, flavors should be allowed in certain contexts, uh, adult-only stores, and there should be a tax differential. So when you start having a this cadre of not just, you know, traditional allies in this space fighting against bans and prohibitions and taxes on, but, a, but really significant academic figures um, who are really dedicated to reducing smoking in the United States, who are as anti-tobacco as the campaign for tobacco-free kids, but are saying that this is exactly the wrong way to go. I think those voices are being elevated and it's going to be important to highlight um, those voices to, to policymakers going forward. Absolutely right. You know, this uh, this newest version of the tax, it's almost like we're living in bizarro upside down world, right? Because it, it is totally anti-public health. I mean, we've got uh, very credible uh, researchers saying that this tax in its current form will drive 2.75 million people back to smoking cigarettes just due uh, to the price increase of vaping products. I know, you know, one of the things when, when I stopped smoking and I was looking at vaping, one of the things that was highly motivated to me um, was the huge cost savings associated with vaping. And when we take that away from consumers, I don't think it's reasonable to expect somebody to pay more for vaping products than for cigarettes. I know in the, the latest version of the tax, I think one of the top uh, tax rates on this, um, it puts a, a tax on I think an 18 milligram bottle of liquid that is two times the retail cost of the product. So if the product is retailing for $30, uh, the consumer is being asked to pay a $60 tax on that $30 purchase. And, you know, obviously there, there comes a price point when, when consumers do look at it and say that they just can't afford uh, these reduced harm products anymore because the far more harmful products are, are now, you know, uh, far cheaper for them to obtain. Um, and so it's it's lunacy to me from from a business perspective, from a public policy perspective, and, and certainly from a public health perspective. It, it absolutely makes no sense. And so, Guy, I hope your prediction for the fate in the Senate um, is correct, because if, if this were to pass, it would be um, beyond harmful to public health. Uh, but next up, I want to talk about um, the American Heart Association, who released a study this week that got a lot of coverage in local print and broadcast media with a hugely misleading headline that said, quote, e-cigarette users face 15 percent higher risk of stroke at a younger age than traditional smokers. Um, there were a lot of problems with this study. American Heart Association ended up retracting it. Um, but among its many problems, it was not peer reviewed. It was an unpublished study. Um, it was recently pulled from presentation at the Heart Association's 2021 scientific sessions. 
It counted former smokers who had a stroke before they started using e-cigarettes as strokes caused by e-cigarettes. And so I'm going to repeat that because to me, that's egregious. It counted former cigarette smokers who had a stroke before they started using e-cigarettes as strokes caused by e-cigarettes. How is that not just out and out lying? Um, furthermore, there was no control group in the study. It found that nearly 7% of people who smoked had a stroke at some time in their life, compared with 1% of e-cigarette users and 4% of people who were dual users. Um, and yet, despite all of these many, many flaws we just listed, all the headlines parroted the American Heart Association's characterization of that study without scrutiny. And so my question for both of you is, how do reporters and editors let coverage of flawed scientific research get by. Um, Alex, do you want to take the first shot at that question? Yeah, of course. Um, I would say uh, somewhat frighteningly easily, right? I mean, you see even, um, I don't know if you guys had seen, but um, during the whole Travis Scott fiasco, there were rumors going around that, you know, a security guard was injected with drugs, right? And then turns out not to be true, obviously. But these sorts of things just make their way onto the internet and then spread around. And it's very difficult to um, unget them out of the world, right? I mean, we've seen this with Ivali too, the idea that we now know it was not from nicotine vapes, it was from illicit THC cartridges tainted with a compound. Um, but it's very hard to convince people otherwise, especially when they've been so ingrained for years with something they thought was true. I mean, I will say it's probably a larger problem with the media in the sense that, especially with local news outlets, there's often you know, not many people employed, uh, they're working long, tight hours. And I think, like I said earlier, they just sort of get an email. They trust the organization because it says American Heart Association or American Lung Association or whatever. And then they just run with it without really understanding or quite frankly, reading the study. They might only read the press release. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, uh, and we've seen this all throughout the pandemic, right? We've seen a just a plagues of, uh, sorry, pardon the pun, um, of, uh, of junk science um, all over the place uh, that, you know, something is put out there, it gets a lot of coverage. Um, occasionally, if it's retracted or it's questioned, it might get a follow-up here and there, but, you know, it's already spread around the internet like wildfire. Um, so you would have hoped that particularly, you know, reporters... Um, you know, dedicated science and health reporters. So perhaps not, you know, just somebody who's, you know, covering general news and they get exactly as Alice, uh, Alex says, you know, a press release from um, an allegedly well-respected uh, um, institution um, that they are willing to just parrot the press release and so on and, you know, just describe matter-of-factly, but in a very biased way, um, what that study covers. Because a lot of those reporters, for instance, wouldn't even know who to call to, um, to get a, a questioning view of that study. Um, there is a great resource, for instance, uh, in the UK called the Science Media Centre, uh, which uh, works on a whole range of issues um, of scientific investigation, um, from drug approvals to e-cigarettes to, you know, everything under the sun, where when one of these stories comes out, you'll see, you know, an important headline in the Daily Mail or, you know, whatever it is, um, they get, you know, uh, reactions from several prominent academics who know that field well to actually take a look at the study and put out short statements on what they think of the veracity or credibility of that study. Um, it would be great to have a similar resource like that in the United States, um, because I know the Science Media Center gets a lot of play in the UK and those, you know, very same journalists who may be covering, for instance, the vaping issue that we're talking about, they'll see, you know, some study that might have some scary headline and whatever, and will contact the Science Media Center. And then they will have several academics look at it, for instance, Professor um, Peter Hayek at, um, at UCL, who will tell them, no, this is not credible. Uh, you can't you can't really trust this or, or at least, you know, include our statements on it. So I think it's looking into resources like that. Um, and, you know, just bring up to reporters, you know, in a nice and polite way. Well, you know, there are, there is another side to this issue. Several academics are questioning this, and um, it's not a great idea to get burned on, you know, a very um, not so credible study. As Amanda's talking about the the idea that, I mean, anybody with an ounce of common sense, let alone um, any scientific training, 
um, would see through the ridiculousness of um, the idea that um, vaping nicotine increases your risk of stroke relative to combustible cigarettes, the most lethal uh, consumer product in the world, um, is is just um, a- a- absolutely incredible. And, you know, Amanda, you're talking about that study, that that study in particular, and you, you, d- you described it very well, uh, the problems with it, that it has just such strong memories of that heart attack study from Stanton Glance, which was then retracted um, and did get a, a lot of coverage. And Mark Gunther, you know, for um, several... Um, published a great piece on piece on this not not so long ago and that was widely covered because if you have an article retracted in a high profile way like that is a, a, a retraction is near a re, a formal retraction is near to a death sentence for a for somebody's scientific career it, there's a huge barrier to getting articles retracted um you know ed, uh, editors of health journals will often give the authors of studies, you know, a lot of benefit to the doubt. They will allow them to rerun analyses to, for instance, put corrections and so on to improve. So getting articles retracted is a big slog. And when it does happen, that really um, blots your scientific career. Um, Essentially, for the rest of the time, you're going to be writing, uh, writing on that subject. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the media and the scientific community is not doing themselves any favors in the eyes of public credibility by continuing to to pump out these easily and demonstrably false studies and, and having them retracted so quickly. Because as you say, that's not an easy thing to do to have a study retracted. It's got to be fairly bad and, and fairly obvious to anyone with a critical eye in order for that to happen. And I mean, I'm certainly no expert. And, you know, I was able to sit here and rattle off this list of, of problems with the study. Um, it, it really does make you wonder why the editors and the experts aren't aren't having a little more pause when, you know, these these facts are are outlandish on their face, right? To anyone with with two ounces of common sense, I think it's immediately apparent that it's it, there's no possible way that e-cigarettes would would cause that level of of stroke, and you know, so so it would seem natural when someone is asserting something that outrageous. That, that those receiving the information would sit back and go, hmm, maybe I need to take a second look at that. Um, but continually, we're, we're seeing that that's not happening. Um, so I want to move on now to a, a piece of lighter news. Uh, the Daily Mail's paparazzi cameras caught up with Barry Manilow this week. And along with pointing out that he was wearing a black leather jacket in 90 degree desert heat, the story focused on the fact that he was vaping. Uh, which leads to my question. So many publications run tabloid stories that depict celebrities vaping, but there's zero curiosity as to why they vape. It almost seems like they're stigmatizing vaping. I wonder what do you two make of that pattern when celebrities are seen vaping? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think... um... There was another, I don't even know if it was a story, but it was a tweet where, um, uh, what's his name? Spider-Man was vaping, um, Tom McGuire. Um, but I mean, I think people just find it amusing more than anything. Um, and if they're profiling a celebrity, it's sort of the last thing on their mind to hit hard-hitting questions about vaping. I will say, just sort of broadly speaking, I think kind of what we're talking about too is, you know, I have the luxury of writing about these things to a very explicit lens, right? I can cover everything sort of through the perspective of, of drug policy, where I, I think most people, you know, quite frankly, like cultural reporters just, you know, want to hang out with celebrities and write about their comings and goings, and they don't have the sort of language to address these issues, if that makes sense, or tracks. Yeah, that does. That makes a lot of sense. Well, the first thing to say is obviously Barry Manilow is now a great man uh, and an inspiration for his brave stance against the uh, vagaries of misinformation about vaping. He has clearly not been put off. So uh, I think uh, um, a good word from Barry Manilow on vaping can only be a good thing. But uh, yeah, I have no idea why um, (laughs) media outlets and gossip rags, uh, why that's something to focus on. Um, I suppose it it doesn't get as much um, 
as uh, as Alex says, it, it's more of sort of a curiosity or something to put in there. But I, I do, I, I don't think it's so, so much stigmatized in sort of gossip columns or when whenever people are taking you know paparazzi pictures of people vaping. Um, I do notice whenever somebody is smoking. Uh, so it, 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 uh, I have noticed that sort of beat of like every time Ben Affleck is pictured smoking, he gets absolutely hammered for it um, for some reason because um, smokers are more or less second-class citizens in this country. Um, so I, uh, I'd still say, you know, um, smokers are still getting a, a, a pretty tough time from the press, no matter how famous they are. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to wrap up, but I want to focus on our final media lapdog for the week, this time coming from the Cincinnati Inquirer, which has published a column written by Terry Brooks, who's the executive director of Kentucky Youth Advocates. We've seen this sort of argument time and time again, where the media hypes the connection between marketing dollars and youth vaping. And I have a question for either of you. Do these sorts of articles do a dis-mongering? this idea that vaping manufacturers are targeting teens. And I, I will sort of kick that off from the perspective of a, of a business owner, right? If, if I were spending a, a large part of, of my budget for my business on a marketing campaign, legally allowed to use the product and especially to to a group of people that has caused so much harm um, to uh, the public perception of vaping. Obviously, youth use of vaping products is very harmful to businesses because then that impedes our ability to provide these products who, uh, to adults who need them. And so there, there is this sort of continual suggestion that businesses are making the extremely irrational choice uh, to market towards a population that is that is not allowed to use the products. And so what do you two make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a fundamental misperception here. There, there are obviously you can find um, occasional bad actors um, in the marketing space for any um, sort, of, uh, sort of adult um, product, but it's a massively overhyped field and has and really fun, fundamentally misunderstands uh, the nature of marketing and advertising, um, particularly for these kinds of products. Um, as you say, there is a <laughs> There are, let alone the people who already vape exclusively, who vape manufacturers will be advertising to, to in order to get them to switch to their vaping product. There are 34 million smokers in this country. It's a multi-billion dollar business. There's a huge amount of profit in getting people to switch to a reduced risk nicotine product. Um, <laughs> the idea that a, a vape business is going to uh, base its strategy on um, making vast amounts of money by getting people who can't actually, who are not legally allowed to buy the product is fundamentally misguided. Um, and it, it, it misunderstands the nature of advertising in that um, most, the vast majority of advertising is not to get people to, for instance, you know, buy a completely new product. It's to get people already using one type of product to switch brands, for instance. So va uh, vape businesses want smokers to switch to vaping or want current vapors to switch to their e-cigarette. It's not to recruit uh, people who don't use the product to begin with. For instance, you know, uh, my friend Chris Snowden, uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs in the UK, puts it like this. For instance, you know, if you take, um, you know, um, say cat food, right? Why does, why does the cat food industry spend, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, a year advertising cat food. It's not to recruit people into buying cats. It's to get people who already have cats to buy their brand of cat food. It, the vast majority of advertising is about brand switching. It's not about recruiting new users. It's um, a very well-worn old playbook to say, oh, these, these companies are targeting kids and so on. But um, outside, you know, a very small number um, of bad actors in the space who are usually fairly disciplined fairly quickly. Um, that it's it's not a major story. It's largely a propaganda campaign to draw the focus away from the benefits of millions. I mean, millions of adult Americans who have switched entirely away from cigarettes onto e-cigarettes and put the focus on this sort of mythical youth nicotine epidemic.
I can add one thing if that's cool. Go for it. Um, I mean, I think uh, the FDA, I forget in which one of these dozens of lawsuits basically outright said they didn't look at um, the marketing details of a particular company, right? Meaning they just looked at these studies and ignored the marketing plan, um, to which I would say you, you can't have it both ways, right? There's, there's, a very, there's a very easy way to prevent these sorts of marketing schemes from happening. And um, I don't necessarily think it's up to uh, the companies, especially those acting in good faith to um, have to put up these restrictions themselves. Um, yeah, I, that's a, that's an excellent point, Alex. It's a sort of uh, the, the sword or the shield, right? Depending on uh, whichever way it suits their arguments they're making at the time. Um, but I wanted to go ahead and thank the both of you for joining us this week, Alex and Guy. Um, we're very grateful to have you on to hear your insights. And uh, thanks for all the great coverage you guys have been putting out on uh, both the tax and what's happening over at FDA. Um, I wanted to let our listeners know that um, the spaces are now available on Spotify and Apple as podcasts, as well as on our website at theabm.org. Uh, we will uh, be making an announcement soon about our Thanksgiving week program. Uh, if we can line up some good guests, uh, we will have a space for you next Monday. If not, we will see you the following Monday after Thanksgiving. But as always, uh, thanks for tuning in. 